And Samuel's word came to all Israel. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh, so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. And then verse 10, So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The Ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Going to verse 17. The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines, and the army has suffered heavy losses, and also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the Ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died, for he was an old man and he was heavy. He had led Israel 40 years. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and near the time of delivery. When she heard the news that the Ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labour and gave birth, but was overcome by her labour pains. As she was dying, the women attending her said, Don't despair, you have given birth to a son. But she did not, pay, did not respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Because of the capture of the Ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband, she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the Ark of God has been captured. And then 1 Samuel 5. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. Verse 6. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumours. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The Ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon, our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistine and asked them, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath. So they moved the ark of the God of Israel. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumours. So they sent the Ark of God to Ekron. As the Ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought the Ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, Send the Ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. For death has filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumours, 
and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. <coughs> then 1 Samuel 6, verse 1. When the ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory seven months, the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. They answered, If you return the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it back to him without a gift. By all means, send a guilt offering to him. Then they will be healed, and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. The Philistines asked, What guilt offering should we send to him? They replied, Five gold tumours and five gold rats, according to the number of the Philistine rulers, because the same plague has struck both you and your rulers. Make models of the tumours and of the rats that are destroying the country and give glory to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Verse 10. So they did this. They took two such cows and hitched them to the cart and penned up their calves. They placed the ark of the Lord on the cart and along with it the chest containing the gold rats and the models of the tumours. Then the cows went straight up toward Beth Shemeth, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They did not turn to the right or to the left. The rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Jumping to 19. But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the people of Beth Shemesh asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? Then they sent messengers to the people of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your town. Then we're going to jump to 1 Samuel 7, verse 1. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord. They brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eliezer, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. The ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim a long time, 20 years in all. Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. Thanks, Thomas. Thank you, Margaret. Are we on? We don't need two microphones, do we? Can, is that working? Excellent. No worries. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we pray as we have a look at uh, this account of the travels of the ark around Israel and Philistia and the effects that it had as it, as it went. Lord, this holy ark that, uh, of yours. Lord, I just pray that 3,000 years later after this happened, that you would help us to understand what was happening that you would help us to understand more about your glory, that you would help us to understand how we are to honour and live for you, and you would help us to understand how this is relevant for our lives today. I pray that you'd help me as I attempt to expound this, and I pray it'd help us all to help us to understand what you are saying today. We ask for this in your name. Amen. Now, I don't know about you, but when we look at this passage today, as Aussies living in the 21st century... Who found it a little bit strange? You know, my wife just actually said to me about a minute ago, gold tumours, gold rats? <laughs> I mean, what's going on? 
These chapters in 4 to 6 seem to revolve around a story about the travel as of this ark of God that seems to make people sick and kill them wherever they go. We read of an old fat man who falls off his chair and dies, not because he's just heard about his two sons dying in battle, but because of this ark falling into enemy hands. We read about another group of people, Philistines, who make golden images of rats and tumours. What were they thinking? If I had some gold, I'd probably make just about anything else before I'd make a golden rat or a golden tumour. To us, it all seems very bizarre. And overall for us, these few chapters are hard to understand. Or is it just me? Who else find them? What's going on? Who was thinking that? What on earth is going on? It all seems so strange. But today we need to ask the question, does it really seem strange? Or maybe there's some strange things about our Western culture that make it seem strange, but it's not really. Before we get into the guts of the story, I'm going to give you a bit of a context with three things. Firstly, how to read and interpret narrative. Secondly, what's this ark and what's so special about it? And thirdly, show you a map of where the ark went and why that's important. And now look, each of those topics could take an entire Bible college lecture, so we're just going to skim over it really quickly. And only after we've laid some of those foundations will we get into the guts of the story. Firstly, how do we read and interpret narrative? That is stories or historical accounts. You know, in our Western Aussie culture or other Western cultures as well, we like stories, but normally as entertainment rather than giving us some instructions as to how to live. If we want to know some instructions about how to live, an ethic or a moral law, we want a law written down. You shall not do this or you shall do this. And that's why, as modern Westerners, we like books like Paul's epistles. We naturally gravitate to them because Paul says, you shall do this, you shall not do that. It's clear, it's in black and white. But when we get to historical accounts, we sometimes get a bit confused. A lot of the Old Testament are historical accounts. We know it's the Bible, we know it's God's Word, but we get these long stories about people doing things because, and we get confused because often at the end of the story, the narrator, the person writing the book, doesn't actually tell us if what the person did was right or wrong. And so we go, oh, I don't know. For example, Jacob had two wives and he also sleeps with an additional two women on a regular basis, it seems. And nowhere does it ever say that it was wrong for him to have four women. So we get confused. Is what he did was right or was it wrong? And the reason we get confused is because in our Western culture, we aren't used to learning stuff from stories of historical events. But in the ancient Hebrew culture, and in fact in many non-Western cultures today, such as even the Aboriginal culture in our own country and many other cultures around the world, they do not need a commentary about the right or wrongs of Jacob's wives to know whether it's right or wrong. Because it's plain to them when they read that Jacob has multiple wives that it does not turn out well. They don't need the Bible to say, see, 
didn't turn out well, don't do it. They just notice that it didn't turn out well, so they know not to do it. And in fact, when anyone had multiple wives in the Old Testament, be it Jacob or David, or even a few chapters ago in the first chapter of 1 Samuel with Elkanah, there's never any commentary about it being right or wrong. But in every single case, it ends in family strife, quarrels and jealousy. For someone from a narrative type of culture, such as the ancient Hebrew man, they get the message, don't have more than one woman. It never ends well if you do. That's just one example. And so when we read narrative, these stories of historical accounts in the Old Testament, we need to learn to step a bit outside, or maybe a lot outside of our Western culture that wants everything spelt out in steps. We need to think a bit harder. What's going on in this story as the ark moves around? How does it end? What is it teaching me? And we will do that today as we look at the story. Second bit of context. What is this ark? I mean, we know about Noah's ark. That was a boat. But this thing's not a boat. What is an ark? Well, the word ark is actually a bit of a fancy, old-fashioned word that in normal English you only find in the Bible. But it really just means a chest or a box, a container. So sometimes I wish translations would do that, so it would be a little bit clearer for us. But this is no ordinary chest or container. This is the chest, the container of God's covenant. And inside it, there is the written covenant or agreement between Israel and God. That means it's really important. It represents the covenant, the agreement between God and Israel. The ark was also the central object in the holy tent, the tabernacle, God's house, and represented the very presence of God amongst the Israelites. It was an incredibly important box, container, or ark, whatever you want to call it. It symbolized the very presence of God and it contained within it the very agreement written on tablets of stone between Israel and God. And understanding its importance is key to understanding the impact of this ark as it travels around the place, as it does a tour of the Holy Land. Thirdly, is that the coffee? Thirdly, sorry, of this. Is that all right? Go the other. The Ark. Is that better? Probably. Make sure you don't have me too up too loud because I speak loud normally anyway. Okay. Um, so this Ark is pretty important. It's really important. Third thing we'll do is we're going to have a brief look at a map. Where did the Ark go in its travels? And I've got a map up there. I'm not sure how well you can... Probably depends on your eyesight how well you can read all the different places. But do your best. Where did the ark go in all its travels? And why is this important? There's a map up on the screen so you can see where it's moving. Notice on the right of the map, which is the east side, that side, uh, where the relief markings are. As you can see there's relief markings on the map. That is Israelite territory. It is rough. It's hilly country. That's where the Israelites lived. And on the left-hand side of the map, over there, my right, your left, 
the west towards the sea, that is Philistine territory. And you can see it's pretty flat. And the border between Israel and the Philistines is roughly where the hilly country becomes flat. So if you can see the relief markings on that map, if your eyesight's good enough, that's roughly where the border is. And at the beginning of the story, the ark is in a place called Shiloh, marked with uh, an arrow on the map there. And the ark, along with the tabernacle, which is the house of God, had been in Shiloh now for a few hundred years, ever since the Israelites had entered the land under Joshua. Now this is what, coming up on the map, is what Shiloh looks like today. There it is there. And in fact, you can see on that picture, there is a flat levelled area in the ruins that matches the dimensions of this tabernacle. So that's most likely where it was. Now chapter 4 starts off with the Israelites in battle against the Philistines. And the battle was on the border between the two peoples, which you can see with that arrow up there, those two towns, between the towns of Ebenezer and Aphek. And in chapter 4, verse 2, we read that the battle was not going good at all for the Israelites. They'd lost 4,000 men. And so in verse 3, we read that they had the supposedly bright idea of fetching the ark from Shiloh and taking it into battle with them. Why would they do that? It says in verse 3, so that God may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. But they're wrong. It doesn't save them from the hand of the enemies. Instead of God saving them from their enemies, we read in verse 10 that the Philistines kept winning against the Israelites so decisively that the Israelites now lost 30,000 men. Eli's two sons the ones, those corrupt ones we looked at last Sunday, were among the dead. Uh, and worst of all, the Ark of God's Covenant that contained the actual written law, the agreement between God and Israel, that symbolised the very presence of God, was lost to the Philistines. We read in chapter 5, verse 1, that the Philistines then took the Ark to the Philistine town of Ashdod, which you can see with that red arrow. But bad things started happening to the people in Ashdod. They realised that it was because of this ark. And so then the different Philistine towns treated the ark like a hot potato, as each Philistine town sent the ark off to another Philistine city, from Ashdod to Gath and then to Ekron. And by then the people of Ekron realised that it wasn't too great having the ark in your town. And so then the, all the Philistines gathered together and planned to send it back to the Israelites. They put it on a cart, pulled by two cows, who pull it off to the town of Beth Shemesh, marked on the map. Then Israelite town, Beth Shemesh, was an Israelite town that was right on the Israelite-Philistine border. So now it's gone back into the hilly country where the Israelites lived. Then some Israelites in Beth Shemesh decide to take a look inside the ark, and many of them die as a result. So they too don't want the ark, and so they sent it to another Israelite town, the town of Kiriath-Jerim. People from there came and fetched the ark, and there finally it stayed in the one spot for 20 years until, a number, until 20 years later, King David came and took it to bring it to Jerusalem. So that is the journey of the ark in a nutshell. So we've gone through a little bit with the context how to read and learn from stories of biblical history, what the big deal is about this ark or the chest with God's covenant in it, 
and a little bit about the political geography of the Ark's travels. But let us also remember that where we are in this point in Israel's history, remember that this is a dark, confusing and depraved time. It's the closing days of the era of the judges. Terrible things happened in those last chapters of Judges where everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And already in 1 Samuel we've seen even more depravity. Last week we heard about the depravity of Eli's sons who abused their position of religious and political power to steal from the Israelites and to dishonour God. And this account in these few chapters describes an even further low point in Israel's history as they keep falling further into depravity, further into ignorance of God and further into confusion. And as I read these passages and studied them, to me I think the key themes of these passages are firstly uh, ignorance, both the ignorance of the Israelites and the ignorance of the Philistines. But also, perhaps I think the key theme and maybe the main theme of these chapters, it's God's glory and its departure from Israel. Let's now have another look at the narrative and pick up the key theological things that are happening as the ark moves around. We've already seen how in chapter 4, Israel was losing its battle. And so they have this apparently bright idea of fetching the ark from Shiloh and taking it with them into battle. 1 Samuel 4.3 says, Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. The Israelites thought that just by having the ark of God's covenant with them, that that would be sufficient to keep them safe, regardless of whether they actually kept to their side of the agreement the very same agreement that was contained within the ark. In fact, several hundred years later, the prophet Jeremiah uses this period of time as an object lesson about his own time. In Jeremiah's time, the Jews of his day thought that God would not let Jerusalem fall to its enemies because the temple and the ark were in it, just like the Jews of the period of time we're looking at now. And this is what Jeremiah had to say about them. Jeremiah 7, 9 to 12. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. In other words, the Israelites had a form of religion, but it was shallow. It was false. It was based around a misguided concept that thought that provided they had the trappings of religion, the showings of religion, as in the ark, they would be okay, regardless of whether they actually obeyed God or not. And in their ignorance, they lost the ark to the Philistines and they lost their battle to the Philistines and the Philistines gained possession 
of the ark. After the battle, the battle, a messenger runs back to Shiloh where Eli is and delivers the bad news. Let's see what happens when Eli hears the news. 1 Samuel 4:17. The man who brought the news replied, "Israel fled before the Philistines, and the army has suffered heavy losses. Also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured." Wow. His sons are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. But notice the next verse. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died because he was an old man and he was heavy. What's interesting is that it is not the news of his son's death that makes him fall off his chair and die, but it's the news of the ark's capture. Why is that so bad? If we read on, we'll find out, reading from verse 19. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and near the time of delivery. When she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labour and gave birth, but was overcome by her labour pains. As she was dying, the women attending her said, Don't despair, you've given birth to a son. But she didn't respond or pay any attention. She named the boy... Ichabod, meaning the glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of a father-in-law and her husband. She said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. The glory of God had departed from Israel. This basically means that the Israelites were now God-forsaken because of their sin. And there is a very clever wordplay in the Hebrew that stresses this. In Hebrew, the word for glory is kavod. It's just coming up on the screen. There it is. Can everyone say kavod? There you go. You learned first Hebrew word. Maybe you already knew some, but there you go. There's another one. And the literal meaning for kavod is heavy. Heavy. Kavod could be used in the ordinary sense of something being heavy in weight, a bit like I'm heavy in weight, but it could also be used for God's glory, his weightiness, that is his importance, his significance, his majesty and glory. So it's the word also for God's glory. And to see the word play, we need to go back to Eli's death. When Eli fell off his chair, it says in verse 18, his neck was broken and he died for he was an old man and he was heavy. He was kavold. That word for heavy is the word kavold. He wasn't kavold in the sense of being glorious. He was kavold in the sense of being fat. Why was he fat? Does anyone know why he was fat? Remember last week? He ate all the food that was supposed to be offered to God. He and his sons had been stealing from God's offerings, gorging themselves on food meant for God and getting fat. The bad sense of the word kavod, heavy. And then a few verses later, Eli's daughter-in-law died in childbirth and as she was dying, she named her child Ichabod. Now in Hebrew pronunciation, that is pronounced as e kavod. Can you see that? 
Ikavod. And that means, E means where, it means where is the glory. Or more simply, no glory. And she said, the glory, the kavod, has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. The irony is that Israel's leaders, Eli and his sons, had traded God's glory, God's kavod, for the kavod of fatness, corruption, sin, and dishonouring God. The glory had departed from Israel, but where has it gone? It's now gone with the Philistines. They put the ark in their temple of their false god Dagon, which is not really a great idea, showing that they too were ignorant. And while in the temple of this false god, the one true God shows his power. Chapter 5, verse 3, we read, When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. To fall on your face was a symbol of worship. And so God's power had caused the statue of this false god to fall down flat into a position of worship towards the ark of the one true God. They put the statue up again and again the statue falls down. But not only do bad things happen to this statue of this false god, but they happen to the Philistines themselves. In chapter 5 verse 6 it says, The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought destruction on them and afflicted them with tumours. Well, we also see this word kavod here again. When it says the Lord's hand was heavy, the word heavy is, guess what? Kavod. Well done, whoever said that. The Philistines are now feeling God's weight, God's heaviness, his glory on them. But this time it's in a destructive way because they do not honour him. They get these tumours. We don't know what sort of tumours they were, but they were pretty bad tumours. And so we see their response in the next verse, chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us, because his hand is heavy on us, that's Kavod, and on Dagon, our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, What shall we do with this ark of the God of Israel? Now, let's now jump forward to our era, our age. Just say in today's modern world, a whole lot of people started getting tumours. Or maybe just any kind of sickness. Just say, hypothetically, there was a pandemic. <laughs> what would people do? What would they attribute it to? Perhaps wet markets in Wuhan? Chinese Communist Party? Donald Trump for letting it get out of hand in the US? The UK government for letting the UK variant develop? Ditto South Africa, India and Brazil or wherever else there are variants developing. It is certainly true that there are human causes which we should look into with the coronavirus. But who is asking about God's role in all this? How many people today say the hand of God is heavy upon us? How many people say, what should we do about this in relation to God? You know, in all their ignorance, and we'll see how the 
the, the Philistines were very ignorant. But in all their ignorance, at least the Philistines recognised the hand of God. They identify the root cause of the problem correctly. And after shunting the ark around to various Philistine towns, all with the same result of people getting tumours and dying and getting sick, they decide to send the ark back to Israel where it belonged. And they decide to send it back with some gifts, some pretty strange gifts. We read in chapter 6, verse 4, five gold tumours and five gold rats. What an odd gift. These gifts also show their ignorance because these are really the last things that God would want. Inside the very ark was the law which said you shall not make an image of any living thing, such as a rat. And a rat was also an unclean animal, so that made it even worse. It's almost as bad as making some golden tumours. What on earth were they thinking? Their answer... The answer is that it was in their ignorance. As we read in verse 5, it actually says in verse 5, they wanted to give glory to God. They didn't really come up with a very good way of doing it, but that was their intention. And then they put the ark with these golden rats and tumours on a cart and sent it off in the direction of Beth Shemesh, a town just over the border in Israel. Now, the Philistines want to know if it really was God who was behind this, and so they make the cow's job a bit difficult. They take two cows that have never been yoked before and then hitch them to a cart for the first time. They also take cows with young calves and send them in a direction away from their young calves. So that goes against their maternal instinct to go away from their calves who need their milk. And what's more, the road towards Beth Shemesh goes uphill. I don't know if you can see it very well in that photo. That's a photo that I took from Beth Shemesh looking down into the valley where the uh, ark came up. So in other words, everything is naturally against the cows taking the cart in the right direction towards Beth Shemesh. As the Philistines say in chapter 6 verse 9, if it goes up to its own territory towards Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. And guess what? It does go up against all those natural inclinations, showing that the Lord was indeed leading the cows. The Philistine plan, for all its faults, worked. Despite their ignorance, they at least feared God, and they did something about it. And so the, now the ark goes back to Israel, to Beth Shemesh, and Beth Shemesh is no ordinary town. It is actually one of the towns that was given to the Levites, and not just to any Levites, but to the Kohathite clan of the Levites. Can everyone say Kohathite? Another tricky word, isn't it? And what's so special about the Kohathites is it was the Kohathites, the Kohathites were like a subgroup of the Levites, it was their job to look after the ark, to transport the ark when it moved. In Numbers 4, they are given strict instructions about how the ark should be handled. They were not allowed to actually see the ark themselves. Only a priest could actually look upon the ark. And a priest had to cover the ark with various coverings before the Kohathites were allowed to go in and handle it and move it around. In Numbers chapter 4, verse 20, up on the screen, it says this, but the Kohathites must not go in to look at the holy things, that included the ark, especially the ark, even for a moment, or they will die. 
So of all people, the people of Beth Shemesh should have been the ones to know how to take care of this ark and not to even look at it directly. As soon as it came up, they should have put a cloth over it or something. And yet we read that when the ark came to Beth Shemesh, in chapter 6, verse 19, but God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. Not only did these people look at the ark from the outside, which alone could lead to death, but they lifted up the lid and peeked inside. Just like in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And you saw the results there. So, no wonder so many of them died. And now the people of Beth Shemesh seem just like the Philistines. They too are killed because they do not respect God's ark. And they too decide that they don't want the ark in their town anymore. So they ask the people of Kiriath-Jerim to come and take it, which they do. And finally, it seems that the people there knew how to look after it properly. In chapter 7, verse 1, it says, So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord. They brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eliezer, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. And there you can see that hill there on the photo. And so ends our story. But just one happy note. If we read the next verse, verse 2, it says, The ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim a long time, 20 years in all. Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. Finally, they turned back to the Lord. And next week we'll hear about how things begin to turn around for the better as the Israelites finally turn back to the Lord. So, what do we learn from these chapters today? At its core, I think that these chapters are an account of God's glory. And that glory is represented by the ark containing God's covenant with Israel. It's a story of of God's glory being misused, God's covenant ark being misused and it's shunted around between the Israelites and the Philistines, of it being dishonoured. And then semi-honoured when people feel the consequences of God's heavy hand, his glory upon them. It's about the Israelite leadership exchanging the true glory of God for the heaviness, the gluttony of corruption, stealing and dishonouring God. It's about the Israelites misunderstanding the very nature of God's glory and thinking that a pretense of religious observance is sufficient to save them regardless of whether they actually obey God's commands. It's about God's glory judging the false religious beliefs of the Philistines, his heavy hand on both them and their false gods. But it's also about the Philistines, even if in a bumbling, ignorant way, recognising God's heavy hand on them and seeking to honour God. It's about the Israelites also seeing God's judgment and turning back to him. So that's 3,000 years ago. How does this apply to us today? The big question is, do we recognise God's glory? Do we truly follow God or do we exchange God's glory for some corruption 
of religious sentiment, but without really listening to and obeying God. And when things do go badly, do we recognise that perhaps God's heavy hand may be upon us? You know, when we read this story, we can think it's weird and strange. But what if those Israelites and those Philistines, what if they had a TARDIS, a time machine, and they could come to our age, to our world, and to see us in the middle of a pandemic, of people getting sick and dying, to see us in the middle of global, rising global tensions, China, Russia, Taliban, ISIS, with superpowers with nuclear weapons, with talk of runaway climate change, to see the confusion of our age, the immorality of our age, and to see our reactions and what we think are solutions. That we talk about all sorts of causes and solutions of every type, except God. To see us not recognising God's heavy hand on us because of our sin, and not seeking God in repentance to save us from our plight. I think that if those ancient Israelites and Philistines could see us today, they would think that we are the strange ones. That we are the weird ones. Friends, of course there are human reasons for the problems in the world today. And of course God God can and does use means such as social distancing, masks, vaccines and other things to help us. We should be using those things. But ultimately, do we ask, where is God's glory? Do we take his glory seriously? Do we seek to follow him genuinely and not just in some sort of token way? Do we ask, is God's heavy hand upon us because of our sin? And if it is, do we turn back to him and look to him for deliverance and salvation? As believers in Jesus... We know our ultimate salvation is through what Jesus did on the cross. Through dying on the cross and rising from the dead, he dealt with our sin and offered us a new covenant, a new agreement with him for all who would turn from their sins and trust in him. Let us be people who live in the light of that, who turn from our sins, from doing things that dishonour God, but instead let us be people who glorify God with our lives as we obey God and trust in him for our salvation both now and eternally. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray that as we have heard, looked at this story, this account of something that happened 3,000 years ago, that you would help us to see its relevance for us today. You are still a glorious God who demands that we worship you, that we obey you. Lord, help us to recognise that. Thank you, Lord, for sending your son, Jesus Christ. And through that new covenant, that new agreement, through faith in him, that we can have our sins forgiven and that we can be born again and live a life that gives glory to you. I pray that you'd help each one of us to do that as we go about our daily lives. And I pray that if there are any here who have not recognised that, who are not Christians, that you would work in their hearts and bring them to yourself. We ask for this in your name. Amen.